Time to go around the courts, thanks to Crime Stoppers SA and Police Credit Union supporting better communities. CrimestoppersSA.com.au. Morning to you, Sean. Morning. I'm pleased to announce that I'm actually getting used to there being a 7.30 in the morning again <laughs> yeah. after my many, many weeks off from the show. And, you know, I'm, I'm switched on. I'm ready to go. That's good, Sean. So are we, well, you know, kind of. It's all relative. <laughs> it's a bit of attrition <laughs> setting in. Yeah, Sean, I'm glad we're going to discuss this story because I, I was reading it online last night and I reread it again this morning to make sure that my uh, eyes weren't deceiving me as I read it. Have we as a society got to the point where people's feelings are now so precious that you can't even say slightly critical things about convicted murderers? Not as a society, but apparently as a legal fraternity. Mm. Apparently within South Australian law, it's now not okay to tell a person who butchered another person that they're a monster. It's not okay to tell a person who did so to uh, get hold of $300 that they're greedy. It's not okay to tell these people that they're scum or that they've destroyed lives. Because according to everything that I've seen happen in the case of Nicole McGuinness, you're just not allowed to say nasty things to people that have done horrible things anymore. And by, by horrible, and, and you've covered this case for years now. Yeah, 20 years. It doesn't get any more horrible than, than what happened to poor old Joanne Lillycrap, does it? That's right. I'm sure if I say to people the words Joanne Lillycrap and Strawberry Patch Murder, that will fill in the gaps. This mm. is Breakfast Radio, so we won't go too deep. But this was one of the most heinous, one of the most brutal, one of the most butchering murders in all of South Australian history. Nicole McInnes was one of the two killers involved in it. She's been in jail. She got out of jail. She got back on the gear. She voided her parole. She went back in. This is the point where, normally, the victim's family, Joanne's brother Ron, gets to make a victim impact statement and talk about, you should not let this person out again, these are my feelings. Nobody at the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions bothered to ring Ron and tell him he had the right to do that. He found out when I rang him to ask for comment. I had to put Ron in touch with someone from the Office of the DPP in order to make his statement. Then before he made his statement, the very morning he was due to make his statement, statement was being made in the afternoon, the DPP forced two rewrites of his victim impact statement. It went from five pages in length to half a page. All of the stuff that we just talked about was removed from it. Then when we got to court, McGuinness's defence lawyer read the half page, raised ire with that, as is his right under the law, and it had to be re-edited again. So the terms that were removed were lower-than-life monster, scum, destroyer, greedy... Among other things. And also saying um, crocodile tears. Crocodile tears, that's right. Saying that her expressions of remorse for having done the murder in the first place and for getting back on the gear were crocodile tears. You're not allowed to say that either, apparently. Now, here's the thing. Just 24 hours before Ron made this statement, I was sitting in a different courtroom for a different case where a man described the person who abused him as a monster. And that was allowed through. Where's the consistency? So... Who objects? Is it the DPP or is it the is it the the victim? Sorry, the, is the perpetrator? Like who, who's the one saying this is beyond the pale? Or the judge? Well, here's the thing: from my previous discussions with previous directors of public prosecutions, men who are now sitting on the judicial bench, the idea, the thought within the office of the DPP was: we need to make these statements obey the law, and the law says you're allowed to talk about the emotional physical and financial impact upon you of a crime. Mm. So the DPP has this attitude that says if it doesn't fall within those three wickets, we're going to cut it out. Probably because defence or the judge may object to it down the track. But if you've got, as we said in that other case 24 hours earlier, a judge or a defence lawyer who says, no, that's fine, let them have their spray, they need to get this out of their system, 
it goes through. So there's no mm. consistency. Well, there's no jury involvement in this, though, so no one None can be whatsoever. swayed by what the brother of, of Mrs. Lillycrap says. And judges have the right to disregard victim impact statements if they step outside the bounds of the law. So you do have some members of the bench in South Australia, District Court and Supreme Court, who will say, let it go. Uh, Justice Sam Doyle, in particular, says, let them say what they need to say. I'm capable of understanding what is and is not legally to be drawn from this statement. Because I can remember doing some work years ago as a volunteer with the Victims of Crime organisation through a few people who'd lost children and got to know them through doing stories. And at that time, there was no victim impact statement. Right. There was a big debate about it, and they only came in in, what, the late 90s? Very late 1990s. I think we're just about to hit the 25th anniversary of um, victim impact statements actually being in existence. And I'm sure I know the whole point of them is to let people who've gone through the hell of losing a loved one, at worst, talk about how it's affected them, and to vent their spleen, if, if they want to, about the person who's done it. I don't want to be a cynic, but the bigger the case and the more high-profile the case, the more it seems the victim impact statement is clamped down on by somebody. Mm. By somebody. I remember um, remember the murder of Anne Redman? Yes, yeah. She was an elderly lady living on her own, murdered by two thrill-seeking kids. Mm. The family in that were told by the judge that they had to temper their remarks because they weren't allowed to offend the two young men. So, okay, why? And and you made the point before, down the track a judge might object to what gets said. Well, what's what What does that mean? What does that do for anyone? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, if you're not swearing, if you're not cursing, if you're not throwing racist epithets, hmm. what's the problem with saying monster? And the, and the point of the process this comes is once a verdict's been rendered. Conviction has been recorded. So we know we're right. only talking about guilty people here. We are only talking mm -hmm. about guilty people. We are so this sometimes is... talking about after an appeal is even exhausted. So let's be explicit. We are talking about protecting the rights of people who are found guilty of the most heinous crimes of having their feelings hurt. 100%. 100%. So and saying clear. that we're not allowed to say these things. Now, I would love to Good. explain. I would love to answer your question, Will. But I put it to the DPP yesterday in an email and I have yet to hear back. I'm assuming that perhaps Scott Morrison was the DPP at that point, and that's why I haven't heard back yet, <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're, they're analysing. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no word from the DPP yet as to why they felt the need to cut this set, this victim impact statement down before it even reached court. Have you guys got the original statement and posted it? We do indeed. You can read the original statement online at bit.ly slash lillicrap, which is L-I-L-L-E-C-R-A-P-P. -P. I really urge everyone to go out and read it yeah. to see Good. exactly what this family wanted to say about the loss of their loved one. Unbelievable. Mm, you amazing. Know, I, I'm just, you gave me the best tagline for Just Lawful coming up this weekend in, in the newsbreak a moment ago. A gun runner who unleashed an arsenal of weaponry into the underworld and a drug dealer who's making millions importing drugs from overseas, neither of whom have graduated high school yet. Tell us more, Sean. This is what we're talking about in Just Lawful this week. Daniel and I are continuing our coverage of what happens when youths are accused of crimes. Sorry, not accused, convicted of crimes that we usually think are only committed by adults. So we're going to break down the case of these two pre-graduation entrepreneurs, one of whom imported hundreds of thousands, near millions of dollars worth of drugs into South Australia. He even had a Facebook page called I Am A Drug Dealer. <laughs> well, there you go. He you got know. prosecuted Pays by... advertise. That's right. He got prosecuted by federal <laughs> authorities for this. And also a kid who decided that, look, Dad's arsenal of 33 guns, which is all completely lawful and legally stored, if I sell that off to my underworld contacts, maybe I'll make myself a big man and uh, get some scratch in the process.
So we're going to talk about why and what happened to them and how the law deals with these sorts of crimes when these kids aren't even old enough to shave in some cases. Amazing. Amazing story. Fantastic work, Sean. Great to have you in. Good on you, Sean. Thanks, guys. 5AA Breakfast. David Penberthy and Will Goodings. Weekdays from 6 till 9 on Adelaide's 5AA.